0: Today on Something You Should Know, what's the fastest-reacting muscle in your body? I'll tell you which one and just how fast it is. Then the science of innovation and where great ideas come from.
1: I tell the story of the uh, pill camera, which is a thing you swallow and it takes a picture of our insides for your doctor to look at. And it came about after a conversation over a garden fence between a gastroenterologist and a guided missile designer. Also today, how to keep more of your own money and medical
0: errors. They can have serious consequences, but why do they happen?
2: Most errors and bad outcomes tend to relate to some form of communication error. Are the doctors and nurses communicating appropriately? Are they communicating with the patient? Are they listening to what the patient's saying? And all of those areas are why it's so much more difficult to pin down where things go wrong.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have a job opening and you need to hire someone, what are the chances, when you think about it, what are the chances of finding a great match inside your circle of influence? Pretty slim. I mean, even if you put the word out there, a lot of people who may be perfect are never gonna hear about it. That's why you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that will help you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed does it all. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with these candidates faster. But it's not just about the speed. It's about the quality. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about Indeed is how efficient it is. You get quality candidates, you get them fast, and well, that's what it's all about. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, too. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com something. Go to indeed.com something right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hey, welcome. Time Kinda- to take your mind off whatever it is you've been thinking about and dive into some new things to think about on another episode of Something You Should Know. And we start today talking about your eyes. They are truly fascinating. And here are some things about your eyes you probably didn't know. According to studies, defined limbal rings can make you more attractive. The limbal ring is that dark, round line around your iris, and apparently you're more likely to develop a crush on somebody who shows them prominently. The eye muscle is the fastest-reacting muscle in your entire body. It contracts in less than 1 one-hundredth of a second. There are approximately 7 million cones and 130 million rods in your retina that respond to light. They help you determine color and detail. Around 6,000 to 10,000 years ago, everybody had brown eyes. And then the first blue-eyed baby was born. And all blue-eyed people since then are related to that first baby and to each other. Your eyes can see about 10 million different colors. But if you're part of that 1% of women with a rare genetic mutation, you're able to see 100 million colors. Both sides of both parents' families can all have brown eyes, yet still produce a child with blue eyes. And your eye color isn't set until you're two years old. And that is something you should know. When it comes to innovation, we live in exciting times. It seems like new ideas and improvements to existing products and services come out at a rapid rate and often from unexpected people and unexpected places. So just how does innovation work? Where do great ideas come from? And what's the difference between innovation and invention? These are all really good questions that can help us all better understand how great ideas grow and prosper. And one of the best people to talk on the topic is Matt Ridley. He's a journalist, writer, and businessman. He is a member of the House of Lords in the United Kingdom. And he is author of the book, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. Hey, Matt, welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. Sure. It seems to me that when you look at innovation and where new ideas and products and services come from that one of the things that makes it so fascinating to look at is because things often seemingly come out of the blue or they come from places that you would never expect which i would imagine makes it also difficult to study innovation and find any kind of common thread or or guiding principles on what makes innovation work
1: that's right i tell the story of the uh, pill camera which is a thing you swallow and it takes a picture of her insides for, for your doctor to look at and it came about after a conversation over a garden fence between a gastroenterologist and a guided missile designer um, that's quite a nice example of a very unexpected combination of talents coming together and doing something something different uh, and interesting
0: yeah well that's the perfect example two guys talking across a fence they come up with a great idea but but just coming up with a
1: great idea Isn't enough, right? There's also the important difference between invention and innovation in the sense that a lot of the hard work is turning a bright idea into something that's practical, affordable and reliable and that people actually want to get hold of what I, I call that innovation essentially is, is is turning inventions into practical realities and that's often neglected people think that all you have to do is design a better mouse trap and the world will beat a path to your door doesn't happen that way you've got to make that mouse trap uh, reliable and affordable and available but again when when you've got you know two guys
0: talking across a fence and they come up with this great idea it is so random it is so who would have thought that uh, it, it, it seems almost impossible, if not, uh, frankly, pointless, to try and figure out innovation.
1: It's not that random. I mean, after all, uh, it happens a heck of a lot more in Silicon Valley than it does in the middle of Central Africa or somewhere like that. And uh, a thousand years ago, it happened a lot more in the Yangtze Valley than in Silicon Valley. Uh, So, there's something about certain places at certain times, the Renaissance Italy, the city states there, uh, ancient Greece, um, modern, I mean, Victorian Britain, you know, the, there is, there's something about each of these places that they get together the critical mass where the innovations happen, they attract the right people, the people have an opportunity to share their ideas uh, in a way that they don't in in other places. There is money available, there is energy available, there is uh, talent available to help them. Um, So it's non-random in that sense. It's also non-random in terms of which sectors get innovated. So uh, the last 50 years have seen extraordinary changes in computing and communication but very disappointing changes in transport. And you get a feel for that if you go back to the 1950s and look at their ideas about what the 21st century would look like. It's full of routine space travel, supersonic flights, personal jetpacks, gyrocopters for all. Um, There's very little about mobile telephones and things like that. Um, So, uh, you know, for some reason, we've hit limits that make it very hard to innovate in transport. Well, we've made it more reliable and Uh, affordable, but we've not made it faster. Whereas we've made communication and computing much, much faster, as well as uh, more affordable over the last 50 years. Uh, And so there are things you can say about why that happened, uh, about what's going to happen. Well, there's not much you can say about what happens next, because it's also surprisingly unpredictable.
0: Well, it is interesting that I I imagine that there are new innovations in all all kinds of industries and all kinds of technology. But I think when most people, when I think of innovation, I think of computers, electronics, digital innovation seems to be what I think of, and I think most people think of when they think of innovation. That's
1: partly because uh, digital innovation is permissionless. Whereas if you want to build a flying car, you've got to get out, go out and get licenses from pretty well everybody. And it's, uh, you know, there's a very heavy regulatory hurdle to get over, which makes it very expensive. Whereas if you're building a new social media platform, there's really almost nothing you have to do to get permission. Is the point of talking
0: about innovation, writing books about innovation, to just shine a light on it that, ooh, isn't this interesting? Or is it to come up with a recipe?
1: I'm more interested in the former. I just think innovation itself is a very interesting topic. It's the reason we are living lives of extraordinary prosperity compared to our ancestors. It's the reason we have technology and rabbits and rocks don't have technology. Um, it's, It's one of the huge themes of the modern world. And so I just want to understand it. But I deliberately set out to do something... Rather sort of bottom up here. In other words, to tell stories about innovation, about many, many different kinds of innovations, high-tech ones, low-tech ones, uh, no-tech ones, you know virtual ones, um, and all these kind of things, and then see if there were common themes. So to let the evidence speak for itself rather than sort of go in with a theory and try and make the evidence fit my theory. And so what are some of those
0: common threads? What do you when you look at, different things being invented and
1: innovated, what do you see that they have in common? There's a really interesting phenomenon called simultaneous invention, whereby the thermometer was invented by four different people independently around the same time. The light bulb was invented by 21 different people independently in the 1870s. The search engine was invented by hundreds of different people independently in the early 1990s. And with that last example, you can see very clearly what's going on, which is not that there is some deity up there in the sky who has suddenly injected the phrase search engine into the brains of lots of different people at the same time, but that uh, the, the the contributing technologies that you need are ripe. They're ready to come together. In the case of the search engine, the internet has arrived. People are going to be exploring the internet. It's kind of obvious that devices that help them find what they want to look for in the internet are going to be important and possibly lucrative. Well, it's obvious in retrospect, but did anyone in the late 80s say, you know, once we've got this internet thing up and running, I'm going to make a lot of money out of search engines. Almost nobody did that. In fact, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, the two people who made the most money out of search engines didn't even think that's what they were doing. They thought they were cataloging the internet. They didn't realize they were inventing a search engine for a surprisingly long time. And They, they say that themselves. So there's a surprising, th- th- there's a phenomenon here where it looks very obvious in retrospect what comes next, but it doesn't look at all obvious what comes next when you're there in the moment looking forwards. And so from a broader perspective that you have taken, what is it you can say about innovation in general? One, it's more gradual than we think. We tend to think of it as disruptive innovation that suddenly changes the world. Actually, if you look closely, there's a lot of hard work goes in before the disruption and a lot of hard work goes in after the disruption. Um, It's evolutionary uh, in the sense that there is descent with modification. Each technology gives rise to another technology and so on. You have to go through the steps. And it runs a, a sort of trial and error phenomenon that is very like natural selection. There are lots of ideas thrown out there; some survive and some don't. Google Glass was a failure. Um, Google itself was a success. Uh, it's serendipitous. We've already touched on how you get these strange uh, meetings of ideas that produce new ideas. It's recombinant. Every single idea that w- every single technology that we have is basically a combination of other technologies. Uh, it's got this fascinating hype cycle whereby it tends to disappoint in the first few years and then it exceeds expectations after that. So um, Roy Amara was a computer scientist in Silicon Valley in the 1960s who said uh, a new technology um, exceeds expectations in the long run, but it it, we underestimate its impact in in the long run, but we overestimate its impact in the short run. And I think that's very interesting. You know, think about the internet. The first, you know, by the end of the 1990s, quite a lot of us were saying, I don't know, I'm not sure about e-commerce. It's not really that interesting. It's not quite going to work. I can't can't make it uh, function. 10 years later, nobody's saying that. Um, so there's a, there's a sort of takeoff phenomenon uh, that is quite important. We're talking about innovation
0: and where it comes from, and we're talking with Matt Ridley. He's author of the book, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. When you say that innovation has this kind of uh, false start where people overhype it and it's a kind of a disappointment, does that tend to be typically more digital kinds of innovation? It seems like if you invent a mou- better mousetrap, it's either going to work or it doesn't.
1: It's not going to get better. It's it, it, This is it. Well, no, I don't think you're right there, because what you're talking about is the mousetrap having already been invented and someone coming along and inventing a better one. That's quite late. That's sort of mature technology. But if you think about something like genomics, okay, 20 years ago, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair did a joint press conference to announce the sequencing of the first human genome. And if you read their speeches from that, that day, they are extraordinarily uh, utopian. They say this is the beginning of the end of disease. This is when we start to cure cancer. This is the most important breakthrough in all of human history. In the long run, I think they're going to be right. But if you think about what genomics has delivered in terms of new medicines today, it's pretty disappointing. And that's not, a, not an electronic technology. Um, uh, another example is aeroplanes. By the late 1920s, the idea that you could build planes strong enough to fly over the oceans had largely been dismissed. Everybody thought, right, well, you can build planes up to a certain size and you can use them in warfare over the trenches and you can do acrobatics in them. But frankly, we're never really going to use them much to get across the oceans, at least not with many passengers or much cargo on board. We're going to have to rely on airships for that, which is why there was a lot of airship building around the, the 1930. Um, it's only, you know, 20 or 30 years after that, that we start to say, hang on, we can build aluminum fuselages that enable us to fly lots of passengers across uh, oceans.
0: Don't you think there's some resistance to innovation that, you know, people say they like The new thing, the new shiny object. But people also say they like things just the way they are. There's even a a longing for the good old days. And partly, I suspect, because to adopt new innovation means a learning curve. You've got to learn how to do the new thing when you, you just mastered the old thing.
1: And all of this acts as kind of a pushback against innovation. Actually, there's a huge amount of opposition to many innovations, and it's often based on uh, spurious imaginary problems that might come out of technologies. Uh, And a lot of organizations get very rich, fanning the flames of this opposition. And just to ram the point home, I give the story of coffee, which was an innovation that came into Europe in the 1500s. And pretty well, wherever it went, people were furiously against it. Uh, and rulers in particular kept banning it or trying to ban it they usually failed because people liked coffee um, but there was there were medical reasons you know this was going to dry up your kidneys or something uh, there were uh, there was commercial reasons the wine and beer industry didn't like it um, and there were social reasons kings didn't like coffee because people would gather in coffee houses and have animated conversations about whether kings were doing a good job and quite often they came to the conclusion that they weren't and Charles II of England was very explicit. Is that why he was banning coffee houses? Because he didn't like people t- spreading fake news in them. Um, now, that's all quite familiar when we look at what's happened to genetic engineering in agriculture in Europe or shale gas in Europe uh, or uh, nuclear power, where we haven't been able to develop new nuclear technologies in the last 50 years. Um, there is a uh, there's a lot of vested interests uh, and a lot of scaremongering that holds back innovation even today in fact more today I would say than in the past
0: well I've certainly experienced that resistance to technology and innovation myself and and I think everyone has in the case of you get a new computer or you get a new cell phone and in no time there's a newer one that's cooler and better and you really need to get a new one and I think well I don't this one works fine it does everything I need it to do I don't want to get a new one, but there is that that pressure to keep up and to get a new one, and I push back and say, no, this is fine, at least, at least for now.
1: Well, I, that's a very interesting point, because if you look at the history of the mobile telephone, everybody drastically underestimated the attraction, the importance, the commercial significance of mobile phones. I mean, there's a famous prediction from AT&T, I think it is, that there'll never be a market for more than about four million mobile phones in the world. Well, the, the date they put on that prediction, uh, there were already 100 million in the world and climbing. So uh, again and again, people adopted mobile phones and threw away old ones and adopted new ones at a terrific rate until recently. And if you look at what's happening now in the mobile, the smartphone market, People are no longer changing models so fast because they're finding that the, the uh, advantages of the next model are not as great as they would like them to be. And it's just not worth the bother. And uh, so the, the market projections for the number of sales of, of mobile phones have uh, had to be downgraded uh, in recent years. And this is, of course, the first time this has happened.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's true for a lot of innovation, especially incremental innovation, because, yeah, you can make the phone a little better, you can make the computer a little better, but you have to weigh that against the huge hassle it is, like if you get a new computer and you have to move everything over to the new computer and reload the programs and set all the settings for your email or whatever it is you have to do, it's a big hassle. And nobody's ever figured out how to make that really easy to do. So so that's a big pushback, I think, to innovation.
1: Well, I think one of the reasons for that is because people want to keep you trapped on their own systems. I mean, I migrated from Microsoft-based computers to Apple-based computers about 10 years ago. And uh, I was very, very nervous about doing so. And I'd, um, I wasn't sure I was doing the right thing. And to start with, oh, gosh, this is confusing. But I, quite quickly, I found actually that I preferred um uh, the Mac-based system, it's sort of more intuitive. So it can be done, but you're right, there was a lot of, there's a big uh, transactional hurdle there in, in changing, and very few people have a vested interest in making that easier for you or me to do.
0: One of the things that, that's always interested me about innovation is that you would think, well, maybe you wouldn't think, but I I would think that if if somebody comes up with the next big thing that there's something special about that person or that group of people that they'll likely come up with more next big things, but they almost never do. Uh, you know, Microsoft came out with what they came out with, but then they kind of f- fell behind. Apple kind of took off. And we, we we haven't seen any big, huge, the next personal computer kind of innovation from Microsoft. And maybe it's because they're very vested in their old big thing and want to keep that going. But but it, it, it does seem to strike like lightning in terms of where it comes from.
1: That's absolutely right. And the reason for that is because uh, success breeds size, and size breeds uh, complacency and vested interest in the status quo and, and a general tendency not to be innovative. Uh, so, uh, you know, Nokia became the biggest mobile phone company out of nowhere, but then. Nokia was so invested in voice that it didn't really see the data revolution, the mobile data revolution coming. And it was blown out of the water by basically Apple and others. Um, uh, And Kodak didn't invent uh, digital photography. Actually, it did invent it. It just didn't see the point of it because it didn't want to cannibalize its own business in film Um, and as you say um, you know amazon invented online retail and has been spectacularly successful and has has all sorts of devices to to keep being an innovative company Uh, and jeff bezos's ethos of you have to swing a lot and miss in order to occasionally succeed uh, is an important part of that but there will come a time when amazon is a great big clunky dinosaur and somebody else eats its lunch. One of the interesting things about innovation
0: to me, and you touched on it in the beginning of our conversation, is the difference between invention and innovation. That for an innovation to really work and take hold and get people excited, you have to sell it. Because, you know, if if it's a brand new product, and we've lived this long without it, you're going to have to really convince me to buy it because I really somehow need it. I haven't needed it till now.
1: That's, that's exactly right. No, I mean, the, 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 and this is the point about the difference between invention and innovation is that the, the innovator knows that he's got to go out there and sell the product. Um, and he's got to get it into a form where people want it. Uh, so where Edison was so brilliant is that he, he saw the need to do the hard grind of turning the, pretty good prototype into the very good model henry ford was the same um so uh, these guys were innovators not inventors um and you're right marketing is a big part of that and it has resulted in us missing out on some very good technologies because the inventors didn't know how to how to market them or sell them i find it so interesting as you discussed, that we have this love-hate
0: relationship with innovation, that we like things the way they are, we resist the new thing until we stop resisting the new thing, then we love the new thing, and then we resist the next new thing. And it's this resistance and giving in and adopting and then resisting again that is so fascinating. Matt Ridley has been my guest. He is a journalist, a writer, a businessman a member of the House of Lords in the United Kingdom. He is author of the book How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. You'll find
1: a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate you being here. Thank you, Michael. I've really enjoyed the conversation and some very good points that you've made, too. I know I've heard this statistic,
0: and you've probably heard this too, that medical errors are the third leading cause of death in the United States. And just on the face of it, I mean, if that's true, that's just horrible. How could that be? We supposedly have the best medical care in the world. How could the medical profession be making so many serious mistakes that it's killing more people than everything else but two other things? And then what about all the medical errors that are causing harm, but not killing people? Well, that statistic may need a little further examination. And here to do that is Dr. Danielle O'Frey. She is a clinical professor of medicine at the New York University School of Medicine. She's cared for patients at New York's Bellevue Hospital for more than two decades. And she is author of the book, When We Do Harm, A Doctor Confronts Medical Error. Hey, doctor. Welcome.
2: Thank you. It's so nice to be
0: here. So how big a problem really are all these medical errors?
2: It's a good question that you ask. Part of the problem is we don't know the answer to that. So a couple of years ago, there was a big article with huge headlines about medical error being the third leading cause of death in the U.S. It was funny because I work in a very busy urban clinic. I thought, boy, if medical error is the third leading cause of death, I should see it every day, shouldn't I? but I don't, or at least I feel like I don't. So then I wonder, is it there and we miss it, or are the data wrong? And and partly we don't know because it's very hard to know necessarily when an error occurs and whether the error is the cause of something bad. There's no place to check off medical error on a death certificate, so we don't actually know. It's pretty common though.
0: Where did that number come from then?
2: So this study reanalyzed a couple of older studies and they were looking at hospitalized patients, which, as you can imagine, are not representative of all people, right? Not everyone's in the hospital, thankfully. Uh, older patient, um, hospitalized patients tend to be older and sicker with many more moving parts. And one of the problems is that because you're reanalyzing someone else's data, you're relying on their judgment of whether an error occurred and whether the error actually caused the death. Imagine a patient dying of liver cancer and they're given the wrong antibiotic and they die. So there's been an error and there's been a death, but did the error cause the death? It's often very hard to tell. So it's already a judgment call, and then you're relying on someone else's judgment call. So any biases will then get magnified if you then extrapolate to 350 million people.
0: And so we hear the sensational stories about, you know, the doctor cut off the wrong leg, or, you know, so th- these horrible medical error stories. I imagine, God, I hope, that's the exception not the rule Um, are are they very rare or are they I mean one is bad enough but I mean how how bad is that
2: well it depends how widely you cast the net so catastrophic errors like cutting off the wrong leg or operating the wrong side of the brain those are rare those it takes a lot a lot of things have to go wrong for that kind of error to happen they do happen but they're not that common However, there's lots of errors that are smaller and cause mild amounts of harm. Um, maybe the patient had to stay in the hospital a day longer, or maybe they you know, had an upset stomach when they didn't need to have that. Things like that, which there may still be an error, but the consequences weren't grave, and then there's a huge category of what we call the near miss. That is, there and errors happen, but the patient did okay, or as I like to think, the patient got lucky that day. Um, and those errors are probably vast. We don't really know the number because who reports near misses? Very few people do, um, and because the patient isn't harmed, we tend to ignore them. However, that's kind of like the minefield of the future errors waiting to happen. So to me, near misses are just as important, even if there's no harm from those medical errors.
0: Understanding that you're a physician, a practicing physician, so you're on the team. So I'm sure you have conscious or unconscious biases about this. But still, you've you've objectively tried to look at this problem, an important problem. So how... Would you, if you could step back, how would you rate your profession, your colleagues? How well a how well a job do they do, as it relates to medical errors?
2: <laughs> that's also a tough question because there's many levels to that. So one is, yeah, what does the individual doctor or nurse do? So let's say the nurse grabs the wrong IV fluid. So that yes, that's an error that you can say she did that and that was incorrect. But then you can look at well, what were the reasons? What were the systems that made that error possible? Was she being given too many patients to take care of because they're short-staffed? Was the lighting poor so you can't read the labels? Do the medications look alike or sound alike? Was she being interrupted every five minutes by people asking for ginger ale and directions to the bathroom? So even though we can rank that nurse's, boy, she's really rotten because she gave the wrong medication, you can also find the systems that made that error more likely. As a whole, as a field, I think we are finally waking up to the the sheer volume of, of errors or care that is less than we want it to be. And that includes not just outright errors, but harms that patients receive that we don't intend for them to get, even if an error wasn't committed. That's quite a vast issue. So the profession is waking up, We're still going a little slowly, and partly because we tend to want to blame the nurse or the doctor for making the mistake, as opposed to looking at the system that makes the error or bad outcome more likely to happen.
0: Seems like that would be the case, that the system is the problem. And, you know, I've heard the comparison that, you know, uh, the airplane pilot, if he makes a, a big error and somebody dies, he dies too. So that's why there's far fewer airplane accidents than there are medical problems, because the doctor... Doesn't harm himself, he only harms the patient. It seems a little harsh, but but I see the logic in that.
2: But I also think there's fundamental differences between the aviation industry, between airplanes and, and medicine. So for one thing, all the moving parts of airplanes are moving parts. Most of the moving parts in medicine are people. Uh, And there's all kinds of people on the team. On an airplane, there's, you know, one pilot, one co-pilot, you know, a fixed maintenance team, and that's really it, and the flight crew. In medicine, you may have dozens of people involved in care at all different levels. There's many moving parts. And and. These are human beings, and they don't all necessarily come out the same. They don't show up with, you know, vasculitis diagnosis branded on their chest. They come and say, I don't feel good. We have to figure that out. So it's, it's quite a bit different. But I think going back to your original point about the wrong leg being cut off, why that's rare, most errors and bad outcomes tend to relate to some form of communication error. So it's not like we're just checking the parts of the um, engine, making sure it works, but are people communicating correctly? Are the doctors and nurses and physical therapists communicating appropriately? Are they communicating with the patient? Are they listening to what the patient's saying? And all those areas are why it's so much more difficult to to pin down where things go wrong.
0: What about the patient's responsibility in this? What role do they play in preventing medical errors?
2: You know, medicine, it's a team sport. We hear that all the time. We tend to think of the team as the doctors and nurses and then the medical folks, the people in scrubs. But really, the team is also the patient and the patient's family and the close friends who are there with them. We're all on the same team. And even if it sometimes feel like we are we have opposing agendas, there's really just one agenda, and that is helping the patient get better. And so the patient and family, they do have responsibilities too. Um, So knowing your own medical history, knowing your allergies, knowing what medications you're on, that's you know very important but of course the patient is also the person who's sick and so it's not so fair to ask of them well you know while you're suffering a 103 fever and you know vomiting your guts out make sure you ask the nurse the name of every single medication that you get so it depends on the circumstance i think the more patients and families can be engaged and involved and know what's going on keep a notebook ask the questions write down the answers that's all for the better But I think we can't foist it upon the patient who is pretty busy being sick or anxious, worried, frightened, all these other things that make them maybe not at their best at that moment and much more vulnerable than usual. So the onus really is on the healthcare profession for most of it, although the more patients can be engaged and involved, the better for everyone.
0: Where likely do things go wrong? Is it medication typically? Is it what is what is it?
2: Well, again, we don't have a good answer to that question. And one of the reasons that we don't have any kind of national database for reporting errors. So we have no way of knowing. Uh, reporting errors is voluntary um, or you get sued and then it comes to light. The other day I, I um, detected a, a near miss error that was related to the electronic medical record. I thought, well, you know, what? let me file a patient safety report. It's important for them to know. Well, you know, I couldn't even find the page and the link, and I had to go through six different pages on the computer. I had to call the help desk, find out where to, you know, find this. Then I had to open an account with a password and a capital letter and a small letter, and you know, at that point I gave up. So, we don't have an easy system for doing that. We don't have a requirement. We don't have a national database, so we do not know. Um, it's a mix of those. Certainly, medication errors are big, uh, procedural errors and communication errors. Those are, I think, where the big things are, and then. Overlaying that is the issue of diagnostic errors, that is getting the diagnosis wrong or having a delay in the appropriate diagnosis. But that um, encompasses things like communication errors, listening errors, um, and also, you know, medication errors, whether it's the medications the patients are on, those we are prescribing.
0: We hear about defensive medicine, that doctors, for fear of being sued, do things, do extra tests or do, do or don't do things to basically protect themselves from liability. Does that play into this?
2: Oh, yes. Defensive medicine is an enormous problem, particularly in the United States, which has a more litigious culture than many other countries. And some several billions of dollars are spent on unnecessary tests because, oh, my gosh, the patient's got a headache. Better do a CAT scan because they might sue me. Whereas in another country, you might say, hey, listen, I don't think it's anything other than attention headache. Let's watch it and see how it goes. Um, and so it's not just the cost, though. Every test you do brings in its own room for error, right? You, you do a CAT scan. you Maybe you give someone contrast dye, and they might have a reaction to that. Um, or you do additional tests that, that um, pull up incidental findings that maybe are meaningless clinically but then cause you to do more tests. And so um, we definitely – we're just adding to the pile of things going on, and certainly the more that's going on, the more chance there is for things to go wrong.
0: Well, plus there's this whole – umbrella problem of people interact with doctors because they're sick. Things go wrong because they're sick. It's easy to blame the doctor. You know, people die, but people are going to die. Everybody's going to die. You can't always blame and sue the doctor because they were in the hospital at the time they died.
2: Yeah, so it points to how um, limited the malpractice system is for addressing error because you have to actually prove that the, the error, the issue caused the death or the bad outcome, that can be very hard to do. You know, again, people are sick, there are many things going on, a mistake might be made. It's very hard to prove that that mistake actually caused the the death or the bad outcome, which is why malpractice only helps a very small sliver of patients. Um, Other countries like Denmark are experimenting with other systems that are more akin to our workers' compensation system, where you don't involve lawyers and going to court, but you simply file a claim. And if the adjudicating board you know, sees that this is maybe less than standard of care or you suffered some kind of harm, then you either get a settlement or you don't. And in this way, many more patients um, can get some kind of compensation, get their issue addressed. Um, The payments are smaller, but they're faster. They don't take five years. They take a few months. And also, it becomes now a database, um, a repository for finding out about problems that are going on. So you might see, oh, in one hospital, there are lots of claims for pressure ulcers, boy, something's probably going on there. So it has double duty for both giving more patients some kind of restitution, but also enabling, you know, researchers to see where things are going wrong. Doctor,
0: what about the problem that was portrayed in the podcast and the TV show, Dr. Death? So here was this doctor in Texas who was grossly incompetent and and perhaps even maliciously trying to do harm to people, and he would just move from hospital to hospital. He would get fired for his his negligence and his incompetence. And then he'd get hired at another hospital. and it, he would just move on and do more harm and do more
2: harm, yeah, I mean, that's a a, a tragedy. um and I would say very rare. Um, a small subset, very small subset, of bad outcomes are caused by truly negligent people like that. But it's very small. The overwhelming majority of errors and adverse outcomes result from clinicians who are committed, doctors and nurses who are doing their best under challenging circumstances and maybe temporarily just miss something, Or, but it's certainly not negligence. But there are a few. It's small. Now the issue though of people covering is something else. Because there, you can imagine, you know, a step back from that kind of, you know, true criminal behavior. Let's say a doctor's getting older, or or having poor judgment, or you know, maybe off their game, not you know doing horrific things, but maybe not as good as they could be. Who turns that doctor and who reports that? That's very hard to do. I mean, many doctors and nurses have depression, uh, substance issues. They're being very overworked. Certainly, in the in the wake of COVID, many many clinicians are suffering and it can come through in their work and we would like our colleagues to you know bring those issues to the surface because we want to help that staff in addition to protecting their patients
0: do doctors because i've had really good doctors and i've had really crappy doctors and and by crappy i mean non communicative sometimes even nasty don't really aren't very helpful maybe they're maybe they're good technically as a doctor but they're lousy as as a, a person, doctor, you know their bedside manner sucks. Basically, I guess is what I'm saying, and 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 I wonder why that is. If you're a doctor, why are you acting like that when you know people are sick? They they they, they they're relying on you, and you're treating them poorly.
2: That's a great question. I bang my head against the wall all the time. The book I wrote before this one was called "What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear." about the issue of communication between doctors and patients and why it's so difficult. Because you often hear, you know, so-and-so, you know, great doctor but lousy bedside manner. But what I discovered after researching that book is that those things can't exist apart. You can't actually be a great doctor with a lousy, you know, quote, bedside manner for which we really mean communication skills because What the patient is saying is the primary data from which we make all our diagnoses, all our treatment plans. And so listening, it's not just nice, it's critical um, to be accurate um, and to make the right diagnosis. Now, why are some doctors really crappy? Well, some people are probably just misanthropes and they probably shouldn't have gone into medicine. Again, that's probably a smaller percentage, but I think a lot of doctors are simply so overworked by the system. I mean, right now, you know this, everyone knows this. You go to your doctor and they're sitting in front of a computer screen battling with, with the electronic medical record. You know, you see them hitting the side of the computer and, you know, muttering under their breath about the help desk. And we've given doctors and nurses more, you know, annoying work to do than they even have the time for. So it's hard to even spend time with the patient if you have 25 minutes worth of box checking to do and 10 minutes to see the patient and do everything. So a a lot of doctors and nurses, uh, I wouldn't say burned out because that puts a little bit of onus on them. I think they, it's more like a moral injury. They're being asked to basically cut corners because there's no way to do it without cutting corners. And that's morally corrosive. And so we use the term more of moral injury. And for many people that becomes so difficult, it's very hard to maintain the reason you want to go into medicine to spend time with patients and be with them and some people unfortunately end up with the phenotype of kind of a grouchy uncommunicative doctor or nurse and that's bad for everyone.
0: Is being a doctor getting so difficult that it's really turning a lot of people off or are we facing a shortage of doctors like we are nurses or not?
2: Well, we do have a shortage of doctors, particularly in the primary care fields, that is general internists, family doctors, pediatricians, and you might see a common theme. These are the professions that are very burdened by paperwork, um, are relatively lower paid on on the spectrum of doctor payment, which is certainly no no doctor is starving, but definitely they're lower paid. Uh, The hours tend to be longer. I mean, compare that to some specialties like dermatology, radiology, where hours are fixed and and the pay is very high because they're procedure based. so um we we certainly have a shortage of primary care doctors. Try getting an appointment with a an internist is pretty tough these days. And I think it's because the, um, you know partly you accrue a lot of debt as a doctor. So to go into a relatively lower paid field is is maybe not so appealing when you have three hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. But also the, the paperwork burden of the electronic medical record is, is really unappealing and people don't want to do that. So I, I think it's really a, a concern that we need to think uh, pretty clearly about.
0: Yeah. Well, it, but you would think, though, that if there was a shortage, that those who did go into it would make more money because supply and demand.
2: Well, we wish, but it's really about who sets the reimbursement uh, for right. insurance companies. Right. So if I talk to my patient about diabetes and how to take their medications, maybe you know Medicare will reimburse my hospital $48. But if well, I talk to them about how to make brown rice instead of white rice, which is really important for diabetes, and I simultaneously thread a catheter into one of their orifices, and you can pick any orifice you want, that payment goes up like tenfold. So anytime there's a procedure involved, the payments are higher. When it's talking to your patient about how to take your medications, how to work on the lifestyle to affect the you know your illness, that's not reimbursed. So there's no supply and demand. It's simply who was at the table when the uh, rates were set, and you can bet that the primary care doctors were not at the table. Well,
0: what what about the idea of a primary care doctor? Because it seems like now, and I I've had this experience because I moved from an HMO to to. Blue Cross or whatever, that I don't even have a primary care doctor because it's hard to get in to see one when you're sick. Though, oh, they can see you in three months. Well, I probably won't be sick in three months. And so I just go to the urgent care, and if I need a specialist, I call a specialist. I don't even really have a primary care doctor.
2: Yeah, that pains me to hear that. And and certainly for someone young and healthy, that, that may work for the occasional thing that comes up. But as patients get older and have many chronic diseases, having a primary care doctor is essential. And, and I'm, it, uh, it's been proved to me more and more during COVID as patients you know, were often cut off from their doctors, how much people's care suffered from having the doctor who's known you for five years and knows the complex interplay of your different illnesses And also knows you well enough to know when something's wrong, when they come in and say, "Hi, something's off with this patient just by the way they're talking or the way they're walking or the way they sound. And that's so essential. Uh, Plus, there's more to health than just taking care of your acute illnesses. There's also the idea of being well in between. So a good primary care doctor, even for a healthy person, is helping them, you know, have a healthy diet, exercise to prevent all these chronic illnesses, make sure your vaccinations are up to date, helping you through a pandemic or what have you. So it is really crucial. And you're right, we should be having many more primary care doctors. It's it's kind of a crime that we have more specialists than we have primary care doctors now.
0: Right. Well, if you can't get in, even when you have one, if you can't get in to see them for eight weeks and you're sick today, you wonder what, why why do they take on so many patients that every patient is eight weeks away from an appointment.
2: Well, if, if the insurance company reimburses $30 for a visit, in order for the you know company, the hospital, the practice, to keep the lights on, they have to take a lot of patients on uh, for very short visits. So it, that's the business model, which, as you can see, is crazy. We, we sort of have this supply and demand model for a field that really doesn't, you know, it's not toasters or microwaves or jeans. It doesn't quite work that way. And so we're trying to fit one model into something else that doesn't quite work, and, and that's exactly what the problem is now.
0: Well, we started this conversation by talking about that statistic that medical errors are the third leading cause of death, and I, I think you've done a pretty good job of explaining that, that A, that's pretty hard to determine, and B, there's a lot more to the story than just that statistic. Dr. Danielle Ofri has been my guest. She's a clinical professor of medicine At the New York University School of Medicine and she has cared for patients at New York's Bellevue Hospital for more than two decades. She has a book out called When We Do Harm, A Doctor Confronts Medical Error and you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you Danielle.
2: Well thank you it's been a pleasure.
0: How about some advice that will help you keep more of your own money? And it all has to do with the way your brain perceives cash. This is according to Forbes.com. We know that you're more likely to spend more with a credit card than with a debit card. And you're more likely to spend more with a debit card than with cash. So just by using cash instead of plastic, you will spend less money. But it gets more interesting than that. The next time you need cash, skip the ATM and go into the bank and ask for new $50 bills. Why? Because research says you're more willing to spend older bills than newer bills, and you're much more willing to spend smaller denomination bills than larger ones. So skip the plastic and stuff your wallet with new $50 or even $100 bills and see if you don't keep more of your own money. And that is something you should know. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it and help us continue to grow it and keep producing episodes that you enjoy, we ask one thing and really only one thing of you, and that is to spread the word, tell a friend and ask them to listen to. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.